some ways, the human brain is like a computer. It's an information acquisition, processing, and distribution center, which means that software and computers are in a unique position to be involved in the diagnosis, tracking, and treatment of diseases of the brain. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Seth Gierstein's grandfather was a physician, and his parents were both attorneys, so naturally his plan was to become a comedian. When that didn't come to be, he ended up as both a doctor and a lawyer who now practices at neither discipline full-time. Instead, Seth uses his skills to create new behavioral health companies that make a real difference. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Soonan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, Lisa. So, David. So, Lisa, super thrilled to uh, be talking with uh, Seth Furstein later, who is, we should note, unrelated, apparently, to Adam Furstein of STAT, um, uh, about behavioral health, which, as you were pointing out to me, is really coming to its own lately. Well, I, you know, it's funny. As you know, I, was, I worked in the behavioral health field for a long time um, back in the 80s and early 90s. And then I went into venture. And for like, I, I got to say, the first 12 or 14 years of my venture career, I didn't see a single behavioral health deal of huh. any note. And then in the last few years of it, and, and since, so I'd say the last five years, it's become like an, an endless onslaught of new ideas and companies there, which you know is indicative, I think, in part of the, the greater comfort some people are feeling about talking about this issue. I mean, we've seen- And the dimension of, of the unmet yeah, need. Yeah, it's a part of the unmentionables becoming mentionable. Exactly. I mean, I think we've seen some corporate CEOs really attend to this issue. We've certainly seen yeah. you know, a lot of discourse in the public domain about behavioral health related to shootings that we've seen, all sorts Tragically, of stuff. Yeah. So it's coming out of the closet in a really good way, I think. Well, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Yes, I agree. Um, so let's move on to it, shall we? Indeed. Seth- Indubitably. <laughs> Seth Pierce is an MD psychiatrist and a JD who spent his early career working at the nexus of these fields, uh, actually in forensics, working for a medical examiner. He's transitioned to focus on the living, but primarily works now as an entrepreneur and advisor to emerging companies. Seth, it is great to have you on the show. Great to be here. <laughs> so, Seth, you have admitted to me that you were a total wise ass as a kid and that your parents thought you would likely end up as a stand-up comic. Did you fail? Why did that not work out? Well, there's, there's many reasons it didn't work out. One is that I actually didn't earnestly attempt it. <laughs> So it's hard to succeed at something. <laughs> uh, and I don't think I would have approached it with the appropriate uh, maturity and effort that it requires, um, uh, uh, for what that's worth. So who still inspires you on the comedian front? Who, who, who's your favorite comedian? Uh, I've always loved Chevy Chase. Uh, Eddie Murphy actually was just on Saturday Night Live, and he was uh, someone I loved when I was in high school. Um, we yeah. grew up in the same era. It was like I all know, these right? people. Yeah, I and, I mean, yeah. and then, you know, people like Steve Martin. I mean, there, there have been so many um, phenomenal comics. Yeah. Stephen Wright for, for sort of the dry humor. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, lots of great ones. Do you ever listen to Woody Allen like the nightclub years, you know? I actually have not. Uh, no. I'm not familiar with his work in that realm. 
Yeah, he he was pretty funny. Weird no, those were just was just like a whole like series of these yeah. classic uh, routines, which are uh, prices with the moose mingles, the whole thing. It's great. Anyways, so you didn't you didn't make it in comedy, but your grandfather was an old fashioned family doctor, and you followed him around helping him carry his black doctor bag to homes on the Lower East Side of New York. What do you remember most about that experience? I, I think well, one thing is is uh, back from then, which was that he'd actually sit and see multiple members of the same family. When you think about, you know, a lot of the rules that are in place and a lot of the silos in healthcare, uh, you know, I think by all accounts, he was a wonderful clinician. Um, and, you know, you'd go to an apartment and there might be two or three people that he would see and we might actually meet with the entire family in the living room. Uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, it was really quite different than today. I think something else uh, is that it was very different financially then, and he had lots of patients who couldn't pay. Uh, insurance wasn't nearly as ubiquitous as a product as it is today. And I still have paintings from an artist uh, that I you know, very much have an attachment, emotional attachment to uh, that he would get paid with from her. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at the time. But after he passed in the late 80s, I came to understand that and very much treasure those. That's wonderful. So you went to college at Cornell, and you enrolled in a joint law school. Go Red. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> joint law school. Don't they have a big program. gorge there? That's all I know about it. And then, so after Cornell. <laughs> no, they, no they, have, they have a great hockey team. Oh, okay. They have a great hockey team. Okay. Uh, yeah. Also, lots of snow, whatever. Um, and then you graduated and enrolled in a joint law school med school program at NYU. What was it you, that led you to that? What were you seeking in following both directions there? Well, NYU didn't have a formal program. I'd say what I was seeking was to continue the relationship with my wife, who I met in college. <laughs> I wanted to work in New York. <laughs> Um, I think at the time in college, I did a lot of genetics research. Uh, the PCR machine was a relatively new item that some labs had at Cornell. So I, I did a bunch of work with PCR and genetics in college, got very interested in some of the issues that I perceived, uh, were happening around information, uh, that was contained in, in DNA. I would say that in retrospect, if I had more insight, I think some of the combined degree was around subconsciously or unconsciously knowing I wasn't going to practice full-time, so it was sort of a first foot out the door uh, of full-time clinical practice in retrospect. But so let me ask I'd... you about that. So so you, Seth, so I didn't realize that. So when you were in um, uh, med school, I would think it would be really hard. I mean, just like med school and then the training after that, it's pretty as we all know, like challenging to go into, I never, I always wondered how people could go into it, not at least at the time thinking you're going to do it or you could conceivably do it full time. How do you, but it sounds like even at that early point, that wasn't, you know, you had, you had a, a different perspective. Is, is that what you're saying? I think if you had asked me at the time, I know if you had asked me at the time, I thought I was going to be an internist. So when I entered medical school, my interest, my interest, I took my, my LSAT as a senior in college and an important factor in choosing my medical school was that it had great clinical and academic education, but also had a really good law school affiliated with it. So I, I, yeah. I knew I was going to law school, but I really thought that it was complementary to whatever I would choose to do and was really more out of intellectual and academic interest. And I guess in some ways, the price of being in my family since everyone else has a law degree. And 
And I think I figured out that practicing full-time internal medicine wasn't something I wanted by the end of my second year of medical school. Uh, I became, NYU didn't have a formal program, and I ended up spending a lot of time helping create that program for NYU in retrospect, which was probably... In fact, you said that was like your your first entrepreneurial experience was creating that program, right? I think my first adult entrepreneurial experience, which was described back to me by one of my mentors when I was a resident, when he got to know me, he said, you know, I think for you, the thing was convincing the university to do it, uh, which ended up going to the board of the medical school and things like that. And so accomplishing that was a was a major project for you. Uh, it turns out I did have other entrepreneurial activities in, in high school. I old custom t-shirts. I had a baseball card dealership with my brother. So I, I guess, in, you know, I always kind of was entrepreneurial. Uh, but the, it sounds like the first one that I really, that didn't, doesn't seem entrepreneurial in the classic definition, but required a lot of the same focus, hustle, and project orientation was definitely convincing NYU to, to create that program. In fact, at one point, uh, Sharon, who I've been married to for 23 years now, we actually went to Chicago. I almost had to transfer to either Columbia or the University of Chicago because the NYU, the medical school in particular, was not making it easy to get the combined degree through the administration. And so we seriously considered uh, transferring or relocated at, at one point. When I enrolled at NYU Law, I did not yet have permission to come back to the medical school. How interesting. So... You know, during that time, you said that there were two mentors that helped you make it happen, uh, Dr. Ben Chu and Paul Arara, both. Uh, actually, Ben Chu is one of my partners at Manat now, ironically. Um, talk about that a little bit. Like, you know, a lot of the, the folks we talk about to who have been incredibly successful have really felt that the role of mentors played a lot, uh, played a big role in what they did and how they got to where they are. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So I don't think I appreciated it at the time. In fact, I would say I know I didn't appreciate it. I I did not make good use of my advisor in college. I viewed it as like, oh, yeah, I have to go meet with this person. In medical school, because of the situation I faced with the combined degree, and if anyone knows Ben Chu, he's just an extraordinarily generous person with his intellect and thoughtfulness and time. I, he really went to bat for me. And it really impacted me in terms of my perception of what um, an advisor would do for someone and also in a concrete way helped create that program. I think when I came to Yale, uh, Paul Herrera was one of my supervisors, and he also was incredibly – he was a pioneer in terms of psychiatric care, and he also took a lot of time to really understand what motivated me and to try to help move me in that direction in an incredibly selfless way. And I, I hope I return the favor, you know, to, to people I work with, um, you know, wherever I can offer help. I mean, I, I'd like to think I do. I think it's incredibly important and absolutely, at least in an economic sense, an underappreciated role that people play. It's actually one of the luxuries, I think, of when people are in an academic environment that it's just assumed that they do it. And I don't think people get enough credit for it. Mm. So your joint degree led you to an opportunity at the coroner's office in New York, writing legal briefs on medical issues. Tell us a little bit about that, because that is a really unusual type of experience. So motivated yeah. by Quincy meets Law and Order? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, uh, 
when I got to the medical school, uh, there was a well-known program for a small group of medical students who did really well in gross anatomy to actually work at the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. So at NYU, the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner is kind of an integrated part of the medical school, which is a really neat thing. And that was something that a lot of people were aiming towards doing over the summer. So I started thinking about that office, but I knew I was applying to law school, and I got introduced to the general counsel of the office. And I actually found I was less interested in working in the uh, pathology rooms there than with working with her. And I ended up actually meeting with her, spending time with her, and working on some items she was doing for both the New York state government as well as the city government around new genetic testing rules, et cetera. And I actually got hired as a city employee. So beginning the summer after my first year of medical school and then through the entire combined degree program, I actually was a, an employee of the city of New York, which was phenomenally interesting. I had never been a government employee like that before, but also the work was fascinating laboratories like those were coming out of a very different era in terms of certification and, and the way they ran. At the same time, I got to sit in on all the weekly rounds that occurred. So you can imagine from the five boroughs of New York, they would talk about the most complex cases in their weekly rounds. So I would be with my medical school colleagues in those rounds. But during the day, most of the time, I wasn't sitting with them. And it's also interesting in a place like New York, you'd watch the evening news and you'd know what was waiting for you in the office the next day, which was kind of a, a I'm just fla I'm flashing back to that, but that was a real thing. I mean, wow. You know. Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Wow. So, um, I mean, that's like a remarkable experience. Um, so to help us understand, so after that, um, you wound, and I guess the next part of your story, I, I resonate with a little bit because um, I was born in New York, and then after um, uh, a very brief time in Dayton, Ohio, right, Patterson Air Force Base, where my dad was briefly, um, I uh, grew up, as you know, in um, uh, uh, Connecticut, and um, uh, much of that uh, outside New Haven. Um, and I know that you left New York to go to uh, New Haven uh, initially as, as an intern um, uh, or as an internist. Um, but then you you quickly figured out about that you you wanted to do to do something else, um, and in particular pursue more of an entrepreneurial and business oriented career. Um, that wouldn't be my top-of-mind association with New Haven. I mean, I think of many positive associations, despite what some people say. I think about pizza. I think about the tremendous congressperson, actually, Rosa DeLauro. There's so much great about the area, but I wouldn't have thought there's that much in terms of entrepreneurship and venture creation other than like a few occasional biotechs. But was did you see it more as an opportunity or just whether there's a tradition here or not, you wanted to do it? I think the latter— I know the latter. What happened was I knew I was coming to do psychiatry, and in particular, I thought I wanted to pursue forensic psychiatry in an academic way with a focus on criminal forensic psychiatry. So, But I wanted a good grounding in medicine, so Yale offers you the opportunity to do a medicine internship before doing your psychiatry residency, so I did that. When starting my, my psychiatry residency, I found that I loved every rotation for the first couple of weeks. And then my excitement for that rotation kind of waned. And I actually went through, it's funny, I'm flashing back to this now. I haven't talked about this in quite some time, but... How do you feel about that? 
<laughs> you know, of course, David, it's my mother's fault, right? Everything is my mother's fault. So I, um, <laughs> I actually took a month off. I did my call, but I got permission from the program from another great mentor, actually, to take a month off and just think about what I really wanted. And now that I had a perspective of several rotations in psychiatry under my belt, and I came back with a focus on understanding better that I actually, there were certain things about medicine that I actually liked and was passionate about, but it had more to do with the, the breakthroughs and the innovations and less to do with the day-to-day practice. And I started talking to a variety of people in the department about this, primarily uh, the feedback was that, oh, you'd have to do biotechnology research in the laboratory, which wasn't necessarily what I wanted to focus on, but that's what led me to start exploring what was around, and it led me to Yale's technology transfer office, um, which is where I ended up doing a bunch of work while I was a resident. That's so interesting how many times these te- universities' tech transfer offices wind up being like a, sort of like a nidus for people who are drawn to this sort of intersection and who often is, is sort of a launching point within universities for people doing entrepreneurial or venture careers. Oh, I was incredibly fortunate. But you had a pretty lucky first win, right? You had a pretty lucky first win, Uh because you got involved with histometrics through this endeavor. Wow, did how not? did you know that? You do your research. So, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, so I, uh, so I got lucky in a number of ways. First of all, there were a couple of mentors that took the time to help organize essentially a fellowship for me while I was a resident in the technology transfer office. So if you can believe it, Yale and the administration, the chairman of psychiatry, and another faculty member actually worked with John Soderstrom, who's actually still the head of the technology transfer office. And I, as a fourth-year resident, had an office there. And one of the things I worked on was this really interesting um, proteomic analysis technology that had been developed at Yale. It eventually became a company. I learned an incredible amount about that. I ended up act- actually being able to serve on the board and ultimately, that company was sold to Novartis. So what was the surprise that, for you or the, the big learning or, or takeaway from working at a company versus in medicine or the law or the government? Well, I think that uh, it depends on the company and it depends on what within medicine and law. I think that when you're in a pure profession like medicine or law, I think people take on a pretty deep focus on where that sits within the ecosystem. I think even when I was pursuing criminal forensic psychiatry, part of what I liked about it was it's one of the couple, there's really only two areas of medicine that are built into the legal system, and those are pathology and psychiatry. Pathology like the coroner, psychiatry like the insanity defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of what I like about the, working in a company, and by that I mean I don't mean a large major corporation, but rather in an entrepreneurial way, you can try to cross-collaborate across those silos, whether it's within the profession, each of the professions or across those professions, in a really interesting way. And that can help solve certain problems that's hard to do when you're just within one of those professions. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's mm, what that's you're asking. Yeah, There's no really, question that's so not the attraction Seth, for me. So, so you were working in the venture world also for a while. You kind of moved into that world and working with startups and appointed, and you were appointed the CEO of Caragent, a nanoparticle delivery company. But that didn't go quite as well as, as, the, histometric, as the histometrics experience. 
Tell us a little bit about that. So Carrigen was brought to, I was brought into Carrigen. I had decided I wanted to dive deeper into entrepreneurial projects and spend less time investing. And I knew the investor and I knew the scientific founder from my time at Yale. So the scientific founder was the chairman of biomedical engineering, a really wonderful person, very smart. And they had nanoparticle drug delivery technology. Originally, the work was in um, delivering traditional chemotherapeutic agents in a time-released and targeted way. Uh, we they, they had identified an investor. I knew the investor, and so I was uh, uh, a collaborative choice to come in as actually president, not, not CEO. There really wasn't a CEO. There wasn't really a CEO in terms of the day-to-day. So... We set up shop, we got some grants, we had outside capital, and a couple of things happened. Uh, First of all, the financial crisis hit. Uh, Second, I had some personal health things I had to attend to. And and we actually also made a strategic focus on siRNA, which was an emerging technology at the time. And, And actually, I think we were correct about that as a place to focus, but we were very early in the curve. And it was an interesting lesson about timing and really thinking through market readiness. We made good progress. Ultimately, a number of factors led me to stay away, some of which, you know, step away, some of which I mentioned. And the, the, the intellectual property and the products actually ended up getting, so the company essentially sold off the products and intellectual property, and they they've, have gone forward, actually, and have done pretty well. We, we advanced them, but as a company, it was not a success in a sort of classic way. Essentially, I, I mean, I always think people talk about first mover advantage, but they often forget about first mover disadvantage. Oh, which absolutely! Is also very people, real. It's huge. Yeah. So you were. Yeah, right. I know like you, people. People don't. Yeah, people don't talk about CompuServe anymore, but they certainly talk about AOL. Yeah, exactly. So you you brushed uh, on your illness, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about that because I know it was pretty formative for you, and you as a doctor and a lawyer had the benefit of uh, experiencing the lousiness of our healthcare system and were misdiagnosed, mistreated, you know, dealt with lots of hassles, you know, et cetera. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about that experience all around? Uh, it was incredibly informative. I was pretty much out of the blue given a diagnosis, which thankfully turned out to be incorrect, but at the time we didn't know that. Uh, I was given a diagnosis of a rare disorder that we were told was uncurable and at most, you know, you'd live for a couple of years. And I was in my mid-30s. I had two young children, you know, and a wife. And it was, it is, it is impossible to describe what that's like. And so, uh, and we didn't really know that it was the wrong diagnosis for many months. Uh, and, and we were well-connected. And obviously, I'd been to medical school in law school. We knew lots of people. We got access to pretty much any expert we wanted to. There really wasn't a particular expert in the field. But, but anyone we saw, for the most part, gave us a similar diagnosis, with, with some really amazing exceptions. But we kept at it. And uh, I, I can't imagine what someone who was less connected would have gone through. To be honest, if someone was less connected and didn't land on a change in diagnosis, the medications that alone that I was taking probably would have done serious irreversible damage to them uh, after you know a significantly longer period of time. But ultimately, it was found out it was a different diagnosis, and I was you know fortunate. But I'm here today, and it's more than a decade later, so things worked out. But 
But to give you an example, and I'm sure neither of you know this about me, but we we actually showed up at a major uh, famous center in New York, and we're for for actual like surgery and radiation treatment ultimately. And we were told that it was not covered. We didn't have prior authorization, but if we, but, and it was a flat fee. And if we could just pay the $63,000, we could start our care. But the insurer, we were an out of state uh, patient and we were fortunately in a position where we had access to a credit card without a limit because it was an, at the time American express just didn't have limits. So I actually charged the entire thing pending um, the approval, which I knew would come because we were so desperate to get into care. And so when you think about how many ways that's unattainable for most Americans, and I think it's, you know, many people do know that something like 40% of people go bankrupt within two years of a cancer diagnosis. It's a pretty remarkable example of how broken certain things are in the system. And even more telling only a couple of weeks later, the insurer did, in fact, approve things and did pay the medical center. And we weren't able to get back that $63,000 for like nine months. It was so difficult to get the money back from the treatment center. It's almost mind boggling. Wow. And like you, you went to school in New York and you had an MD and you had a JD. That's amazing. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, in other words, people would think, well, geez, if only... Someone came in with that, and even with that, it just it, it it. I think it just like you're pointing out really highlights the dimensions of the challenge. Absolutely. But one good thing came out of that experience, at least uh, maybe more. But certainly the um, the not for profit you and your wife started, right? Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So one of the interesting things that uh, we learned and experienced was when people are getting treatment uh, at a cancer center. So cancer centers, number one, they're typically in cultural centers. So there's theaters and concerts and other things going on. The other is that the experience is incredibly overwhelming for people, not just financially overwhelming, but just emotionally time consuming. And let's not forget, many people don't live past their treatment. And so I was in a fortunate position because my diagnosis got switched to actually something that sounded way better to us, (laughs) to go from something that was untreatable to something that was treatable with a humongous positive shift for us. And, and I learned at the cancer center, you know, you meet a lot of people. I was going every day for treatment and you meet a lot of people. And I, I noticed that a lot of them weren't taking advantage of the cultural opportunities. And I had known from the literature that positive experiences are really important for people with serious illness and can lead to at a minimum better better feeling and feeling better while they're in treatment, but also possibly better outcomes in terms of morbidity and mortality. And another job I had when I was in medical school was working in the student ticket office. And so I knew that there were a lot of tickets around, and that happened to be in Manhattan. So I would direct people that I met in the cancer center to go do things. I'd say to them, well, don't always eat it. Don't go to the same pizza place around the corner from the hospital every day. Go downtown. Go here. Take the subway. It's only a dollar. Then it was a dollar fifty. It's only a dollar fifty. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. And the other thing that happened was as as much training as I had, I actually didn't know how to talk to my kids about what was going on. And Sloan Kettering, where I was, had a really excellent behavioral program for patients. And I learned a lot from the social workers there. And so I realized it was important for people to connect with, 
mental health care while they were going through a treatment experience like this. So we came up with this idea where we would create essentially an online ticket platform where people could donate tickets or, or make tickets available. And then by zip code, patients would have access to tickets while they were in treatment completely free of charge. And we work with about 20 cancer centers now connecting patients to tickets, but we do that through the social workers. So in order to get access to the platform and the tickets, you have to connect with the social workers who give you your username and password. And it's been just phenomenally rewarding. Uh, gotten help from some software engineers I've known over the years. My wife runs it now full-time as an unpaid CEO. And it's it's called Little Wonder. It's it's the, the feedback we get from patients is phenomenal and from the cancer centers, and it's incredibly rewarding to do it. And we haven't quantified it. We're hoping one day to quantify the, the positive clinical impact, but we just haven't had the time. So as you're coming out of this whole experience, you get back to your entrepreneurial self and start Cobalt Therapeutics in 2009, a digital CBT company. Cognitive Behavioral Cognitive Therapy. Cognitive Behavioral Health Company, working on that field before, really before anyone else was doing it much. Um, what did you? Uh, what was the company? What did you do? And tell us about your biggest uh, success and your biggest failures there, or biggest mistakes and biggest successes. Uh, the biggest success, I think, is that we succeeded at all. I mean, when you realize the challenges <laughs> that, that companies have, uh, we actually did well. That software continues to penetrate the marketplace. So I think the biggest success was building a digital health company that not only built products that worked, but that actually was turning profitable and was successfully acquired. It's, a, in retrospect, remarkable. What did it do? What does Cobalt do? Uh, Cobalt had a platform and five programs that delivered digital therapy, uh, kind of interactive software programs that could help patients with their mood or with their anxiety, uh, with their insomnia, with their obsessive compulsive disorder, or with their addiction. And we had contracts in primary care, uh, with accountable care organizations, with government bodies, and with insurers. Ultimately, an insurer asked us about acquiring the company. That was a really phenomenal experience and success. And again, I had great mentors. So I learned an, an incredible amount and had access to them through the transaction process. Uh, we also had, eventually, we built screening software because we learned to our surprise that even though, though we had these software programs available once the, the need was identified, a lot of clinicians and clinical sites didn't know how to decide who got what. Uh, the gaps went beyond just access to care. There were gaps in identifying who needed what kind of care. And so we ended up having a bunch of screening software as well. And, and it, that software is still in use and continues to evolve. When we started the company, there were no apps. The iPhone had just come out that year that we launched. And uh, now, you know, of course, there's Probably it's been three generations of software since then. I'm no longer involved in that software, but it continues to expand and grow and is used in tens of millions of benefit lives in the U.S. Seth, let me ask you about let me ask you about CBT and digital. So you know, so CBT, you know, you know when you when you think about um, you know behavioral health intervention or you know something like CBT, you know, um, on the one hand, when people think about sort of behavioral health interventions. They think a lot about the role of, you know, the th- therapeutic relationship, the connection between the, 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 the therapist and, and the patient. And that, on the one hand, would seem like 
sort of a critical non-negotiable part of the successfulness, I would think, of therapy. But on the other hand, you're, it, you know, given all the numbers and how hard it is for people, to, you know, there are more people who need help than who can get help. You know, there's been a huge amount of interest that we've been talking about to to try to utilize digital tools better. How do you see those two things connecting? The obvious value you've seen as as a psychiatrist of the value of connecting with people, but then also the opportunities for digital in the space. Wow. Okay. So a lot of things there. Well, that's the core question, right? I mean, yeah. isn't that the sort of so, the core question? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's, the trouble is you gave such a long, complicated question. It's such a simple answer, David. Um, so of I course. Think, uh, uh, it's your mother again, right? Exactly. <laughs> I think a couple of things. I don't think it's binary. So I think just like in the nature versus nurture sort of genetics versus environment debate, it's an artificial debate in that sense, right? From the moment you're conceived, the environment changes your genes, right? And so I don't view that as binary, and I don't view it. So to me, software can bring clinicians and patients closer together. It can give a different, additional, or unique way for them to develop a relationship. And where there are things that a clinician doesn't need to spend time on, it allows them to spend more time on the relationship. So for instance, one of the things that you'll probably never hear anywhere, but is technically true, is that in mental health, insomnia is by far the most commonly treated complaint. A lot of psych meds cause insomnia. Insomnia is a common comorbidity with a lot of psychiatric illnesses. So at any given time in a psychiatric hospital or a psychiatric practice, somewhere between 50 and 80% of the patients have insomnia. Now, the treatment guidelines and the data show, I'm picking insomnia just as a specific example. Treatment guidelines and the data show that for insomnia, medications can be helpful for some patients for a few days, but that to use them for extended periods doesn't really have good clinical outcome overall. CBT, which is pretty straightforward, works incredibly well for most patients. Should a psychiatrist spend six sessions in a row just delivering a highly manualized CBT for insomnia when a software program can do just as well? I don't think so. Um, I think that it'd be better for the psychiatrist to focus on other things or not have to have that patient come in during the weeks that are unnecessary. I would say most people would feel that it's good for a relationship not to waste someone's time. And so uh, I think it really all depends on the way you approach it. I'd say for me, and it may be obvious from the way I described it, my view is that software should be used to do things that you either can't otherwise do or that allow you to do other things with the time that they free up, but they shouldn't replace care providers. But what's your view about people like interacting? Because it was really interesting. I think it was a 99% invisible I just listened to talking about like Eliza, you know, the the first, you know, some of these first, um, essentially these reflective algorithms, you know, that sort of say, what do you, you know, how are you feeling about that? Or, you know, just ask the most basic questions and what the point of this program was, was how, the, how impactful that was, how people, re, like at least some of the people, obviously, re, really connected with something that they knew was an algorithm. They wasn't pretending to be a person. It wasn't a Turing thing. They knew it was an algorithm, but they really found it beneficial. And they told like the guy who created it to leave the room so they could share private secrets with this computer. Um, and, you know, and I wasn't sure to what extent, but I, I didn't know if that was just like a cutesy thing or if, the, I mean, what you just said earlier uh, in passing was that if people can have CBT delivered, you know, by a computer essentially, 
And is that right? I mean, you can have CB. No, no, I, I at least is not. No, I'm, we've, I mean, I know that I was sort of a leading question. But on the face of it, it sounds surprising that a computer would be able to, quote, deliver something that one thinks about as being, you know, involving human interaction. <laughs> you mean like porn? Well, <laughs> I, I think, and I think, you know, you need to think about it. It can be hard. And, and even within the mental health field, I don't think people spend a lot of time doing what I'm about to say, which is, I think you need to separate the specifics of what you're trying to accomplish from the question. So in the case of insomnia or, you know, your sort of typical low-level depression, most people get better and they do just as well with a software program. Um, Why people are seeing a clinician is an important question. I think I would argue that psychiatry, psychiatry was really the original cosmetic and plastic surgery. And let me explain what I mean, right? There are, there are two kinds, there are two kinds of, of patients who see plastic surgeons. Some of them may have had a serious medical issue, like they they were in a fire and so something got burned and they need to be returned to their baseline. Yeah, the reconstructive surgery stuff. You know, and then some people may have had a cancer and so part of their body was changed or removed and they're trying to be returned to to the way they were. Other people are just simply choosing to have a cosmetic procedure and they find value in that. And the, the surgeon finds value in delivering that cosmetic procedure. So it's not like it doesn't help them to have it, but it's not medically indicated. And mental health is similar. There are many patients who have something that has gone wrong that is interfering with their functioning and their productivity and their livelihood and their happiness in a serious way, and they need medical care and, and treatment to get back to the way they were. There are other people who are functioning pretty well. They're going to work. They're you know productive in their lives. But they feel better when they go and see a therapist. And that's really more like cosmetic surgery and is not as reaching that high level of need. And so I think when, with your question around the relationship, I think that if someone needed plastic surgery and a robot could fix the scar on their face or, you know, or, or the burn scars that are left after a fire or do breast augmentation after a mastectomy for cancer... I don't think anyone would care if a surgeon was doing that or a robot, as long as it worked well. And on the other hand, I think that getting counseling from a surgeon around which procedure to have and whether to have uh, the procedure done and what the risks are, that's different, and that takes a relationship. And so I don't view one as replacing the other. I think they can be complementary to each other. So now, Seth, you, you left, you, you, so you sold Cobalt to Magellan. You spent four years there as their chief innovation officer looking at, you know, the, the legion of, of innovations in behavioral health. And now you've left again um, because you wanted to start a new company, a uh, behavioral health company focused on suicide prevention. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing? I mean, that's a pretty tough area to focus on day after day. Why did you choose that? Well, I think we chose it for a few reasons. One is we want to, you know, I'd like to work on things where I feel that I can make a difference. So that's one thing. The second is I think I was, as I learned more about suicide, I was shocked and disappointed that more hadn't been achieved in terms of bending the curve. Suicide rates have been going up for 20 years in the U.S. It's a top 10 killer. Uh, it's incredibly hard to access care in the mental health system generally, and it's much harder if you're someone with a history of suicide risk. 
Uh, I mean, it's easy in some ways. You show up at an ER and you get admitted. But the trouble is there really wasn't a good match between things that were shown to be helpful for patients who were suicidal or had risk of suicide and and, and them actually getting care. And uh, so just started thinking about it. Um, was fortunate to have colleagues who I'd worked with in the past that were interested in it as well. And so... You know, you only live once. If you're going to try to tackle issues and they can be really important issues, that seemed like a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, I, you know, there are a lot of issues in the healthcare system. I'd love to say that the reason, Lisa, you talked earlier about not doing a lot of behavioral deals and then shifting, I'd love to say that that was because we solved all the other problems and now we can focus on behavioral. Uh, but I think the reality is this was a big problem within a field of lots of problems, medicine generally and then behavioral health care. And I also believe that if you focus in on a really serious problem, you can actually have an effect across the ecosystem. And I think cancer is a good example of this. When you look at what's happened with cancer therapeutics, when companies focus in on specific diseases and really start to understand and crack them, that has spread throughout the oncology ecosystem. And I think part of our broader hope is that by focusing in on a particularly big and complex problem, if we can crack part of it, I and mean, we certainly aren't going to completely solve and eliminate suicide, but if we can crack part of it, that actually should impact behavioral health care more broadly and healthcare broadly. Uh, we're focusing on suicide, but I, I do believe that it can have that kind of secondary effect. That's great. I mean, I'm, thank goodness somebody's taking this on because it's such a huge public health issue and it's astonishing how little has been done to address it. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're doing Absolutely. that. Um, well, it has been lovely chatting with you, as always. And um, I, you know, hope that your company, we hope that your company is incredibly successful. I know you're just, you're just beginning to roll it out. And uh, look forward to the opportunity to talk to you again, Seth. Well, thank you. Maybe I, I think it's a good excuse for me to talk to Manat about working with the company to help us succeed. They've been so generous at uh, supporting this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, look forward to talking to you in the future, and best of luck with the launch. Thanks so much, Seth. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. So that was interesting, Lisa, on, um, on many levels. I think, first of all, you know, to the you know, sort of an entrepreneur in behavioral health with his background. I mean, it's a fascinating background, yeah. but, but the part I actually wanted to ask about or to follow up on is, you know, one of the really recurrent themes that I thought he really went out of his way to emphasize because of the impact was the role of mentorship. I, you know, it struck me at every step of his career, at least, you know, sort of in a retelling, it seemed like what was so pivotal was the role of mentorships and that his career, from the way he described it, um, you know, it's really distinctive and exceptional. Seems like it could, you know, it had many points where it could have gone in different directions. And I think the, you know, and obviously there must be something about him that um, brings out the best in certain mentors. But it, it's really such an important feature. I mean, when I think my own career, you know, probably both things that work well and maybe there'll be other things that would have worked well if there was a mentor, you know, it's really interesting. Oh, I know. I've, I know we've, you know, it's a topic that I talked about at length. Um, and written about at length. And I think, you know, knowing how to access and utilize a great mentor is great for both parties, but it's particularly pivotal, I think, to, to people's... Yeah, and for people, I mean, I'm sure it's probably true in every dimension, but I imagine that in people who are particularly taking chances like Seth was doing here and trying to go out in different directions, and I know when I've tried to do things that were a little bit different, having somebody, I mean, 
who is who is available and who is receptive and who's really willing to kind of take on the risk and have your you back. Say maybe you are crazy, but it's still okay. Yeah, you're my crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I probably shouldn't throw that word around in a discussion with the psychiatrist. But anyway. <laughs> Well, uh, it was yeah, it was a great discussion. Today's guest, Seth Yorstein, was speaking to us from his home in Connecticut. Connecticut, what a great place! <laughs> you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report, and please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And you can follow Lisa Sunin's writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Take care. Hop along, Cassidy. Bow and arrow. Very weird. That's for Seth.